0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with the world's best magic players. Are you tired of listening to the same old Magic the Gathering podcasts, Deck of the Week, or how some random dude won his local FNM? Maybe rules changes or yet another preview card discussion? Well, this is not that kind of podcast. In fact, we're going deep into the minds of your favorite magic players. This is going to be a personal journey. And a study in how they approach the game. Mindset, motivation, goals, it's all here. So sit back, relax, and get ready for a unique learning experience. Humans and Magic is available on iTunes. Please subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss a future episode again. Just open up your podcast app, search for Humans and Magic, that's Humans of Magic, and hit that subscribe button. And hey, if you like what you hear, please leave a review and tell a friend. I've also started a website to host all this content. It's on humansofmagic.com. You'll actually find text transcripts of a lot of these audio interviews. So if you ever want to read the Martin Yuzza interview or Jerry Thompson or some of these other guys that I've had on the show, please hit up humansofmagic.com. That's humansofmagic.com. Jarvis Yu is back. Jarvis was my first guest on the show, and I'm excited to have him back. In this two-part series, I sit down with him for an in-depth conversation. Now, part one is the Jarvis year-in-review. Jarvis opens up about his accomplishments, goals, and insights for the coming year. He is also brutally honest about where he needs to improve in order to reach the next level. As he plays on the Pro Tour and is a regular on Team Mass Drop East, you may find his observations helpful to your own player development. Part 2 is the Legacy Lands Mini Primer, straight from the Master himself. As one of the most accomplished Lands players on the planet, with two Grand Prix Top 8 finishes including a win and a Top 16 finish, Jarvis is uniquely qualified to speak on this subject. We cover deck basics, matchups, card choices, and more. So definitely give Part 2 a listen if you want to unlock the intricacies of the deck. For maximum Jarvis, make sure you listen to both parts. I hope that you enjoy listening to this double-header series as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, I guess I'll just—I just, just turn recording on. We'll just kind of uh, get get going here. So, um, oh, man, it's been a—it's been a long time. It uh, has. Yes. <laughs> Jarvis, man, good to uh, good to talk to you again. How are things going with you?
1: Well, it's uh, just had Thanksgiving yesterday at a friend's place. It was uh, pretty nice. I don't know. We played, stayed up late, played some games. You know, life's good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, games of Magic or other stuff too. Oh no,
1: no, there's um, there's a game called Secret Hitler. It's uh, do you know what Werewolf or Mafia are?
0: Yeah, is it similar to that?
1: It, it is sort of similar to that. It, there's a little bit more to it than that, but it, the theme is pretty similar.
0: The the title of the game though is really, really, uh, really interesting. Like why, why, why that?
1: So the the like flavor of the game is you're the German government, and you either enact liberal policies or fascist policies. But the fascists are secretly hidden. Like so, the game is to find out who's Hitler and who are the fascists, and try not to let them have any power.
0: <laughs> so it's
1: secret Hitler.
0: So does one of the players get picked to be secret Hitler, or is is that yeah?
1: Just- you, you deal out roll cards at the beginning, face down, and you like look at it, but no one else is supposed to see it.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's why you asked me if it's like Mafia because there's games like that in China too, like Killer and you have to guess like the different roles of the players and all that.
1: Oh, nice, nice. Didn't realize that because I didn't grow up there or whatever, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Other than your very short um, university stint over there, right? Uh,
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which if I remember our conversation was pretty, pretty lax, like pretty relaxed. Like you had a lot of time to play Magic and and kind of chill out, so. It, yeah, that's how I would describe it. <laughs> yeah. Did you do anything Thanksgiving-wise with your family at all? Or like usually you do it with your friends? Or is that something uh, you guys do at think, home?
1: It, it depends. Uh, this time they went up to Connecticut and I wasn't sure if I would be working or not today. So I didn't go with them. But it turned, turns out I didn't have to work today. So, you know, it, it sometimes it's hard to tell until like the last, you know, hour or so.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I just wanted to have a a chat with you. You were the first person I ever had on the podcast uh, for <laughs> Humans of Magic. And to this mm-hmm. date, you're still like probably one of the best interviews that I've had because uh, it's kind of Thanksgiving. So I kind of wanted to express my gratitude and appreciation of because it was like over a year ago. I think it was like June last year. And I just thought about starting to do the show. And uh, you just messaged me kind of out of the blue and said, hey, let's record together. And I needed that extra push. And <laughs> the rest is kind of history. So right. uh, I, and I think I think to this day, I still get a lot of feedback from people who have listened or read the transcript. And they've said that by far, you were one of the most introspective interviews that that I've had uh, out of all the guests. So uh, <laughs> whenever they mention like their favorite episodes, it's always... Jarvis or Jerry Thompson it's like one of those two things so uh, <laughs> <laughs> so just wanted to let you know that you you did awesome and I was terrible but hopefully I'll do a little bit better <laughs> <around that. laughs> oh, You fine. <laughs> yeah so we're just kind of like go through this is going to be kind of the Jarvis year in review um, I, I it's been so long since we talked and I'm sure a lot has has happened with you and you know you've started streaming you've you've had a lot of success as a magic player, and um, I thought maybe I would just start off by just just asking you like in your mind, like how did the year go? I mean, it's already November two thousand seventeen uh to me, it just felt like yesterday it was like January, but i mean uh, any any right. thoughts in general about the whole year? I mean, it's gone by really quickly, at least for me
1: it. It's interesting you ask that. I sort of view the Magic calendar as being different from the regular calendar, and the reason being is the first Pro Tour of the year is generally in October or September, and that sort of marks the new year for me. So I'm sort of like in New Year mode, as as it were, Magic New Year mode. Obviously, like obviously like the the you know European New Year is like January first. Chinese New Year can fluctuate, you know, February to March or whatever, depending on when the calendar actually ends up. Hebrew New Year, I can't even tell you when, when it is offhand, <laughs> but no, right right now I feel like it's been the New Year I started and I'm sort of starting to figure out what I want to do for this year and like.
0: Right on, right on. So what about, so I guess if August is sort of the beginning, you're on the pro player calendar. Uh, What's been, what's, what's it been like towards the second half of quote unquote last year? I guess, uh, January to, to, to July. Like, did you have any, any thoughts at all around that?
1: Uh, so January to July, I'm trying to remember. I think I, I think I played reasonably well, but not like amazingly well. And sort of at those, you know, high-level events, the, well, deep into day two of, like, a Grand Prix or something, you can't really afford to give up any percentage points. Like, the difference between, like, good play and great play adds, like, it's just, it's enormous by that point. Like, if you if you just eat the wrong thing for breakfast, maybe you do worse than you would have otherwise, you know. It's just the little things like that. Getting enough sleep, you know, drinking water especially in Vegas, that was brutal. Like, I I was signed up to play the Legacy event, and I was like, if I didn't do well in Legacy, I would play the Limited event. Fortunately, I made a deep run in the Legacy event, but then I still had to play the Modern event the day after. So it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint, in those events, and you really can't afford to give up percentage points late in the day, almost ever.
0: How was how was Vegas in general for you? Like, did you when you got off the plane? Did you just focus on magic, or did you have other stuff going on?
1: I I stayed at a friend's place. Thankfully, uh, a compatriot of mine who plays poker named Ben Yu. No relation. We just have the same last name. Obviously, it, a lot of your uh, listeners or whatever from China they'll understand that, but like the average American doesn't know that that that's like a relatively common last name. So they think it's funny, <laughs> but we, we, I managed to trick people saying I just would say with like a deadpan face, yeah, me and Ben are cousins and they would just believe it even though we don't look anything alike or whatever, because cousins don't have to, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, but Ben didn't actually play a single match of magics that, that weekend because there were a bunch of dis- WSOP events going on. So I just stayed at his place and barely saw him except like when he would walk in the door at like 4am in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, bit, it was a little
0: weird. bit more of a de- degenerate life than the magic players. I would expect.
1: It's not even that. I think it's just the tournaments run really late and start like they start at weird times and end at weird times. So his sleep schedule is like really weird during those days. How did
0: you guys know each other? Like, how did you guys meet?
1: I'm um, trying to remember that. I think late in 2015, there was a Grand Prix Toronto that. Uh, he wanted to, he was just looking for people to stay with. And I, I knew he was friends with some of my friends and that we like, he was a reasonable person for him to stay with us. So I just booked an Airbnb and told him to just come him and Corey Burkhardt stayed in my room for that event. So, you know, it's just a lot of networking,
0: frankly. Yeah, for sure. So the Vegas experience, uh, did you gain any edges or percentage points by eating properly and doing the things that you, you said?
1: I drank so much water during the legacy event and then I didn't drink as much water during the modern event and I got a bloody nose like during round like seven and I felt terrible after that, so I don't think I was playing particularly well during the modern event. But I think it's just it was so dehydrating during like June there or July there, whenever the event was.
0: I uh, I should have just packed like just filled my backpack full of water bottles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's no
0: I, need to eat; just just drink water, right?
1: Oh yeah, I you can just trick your stomach into thinking, it's "Well, if you drink a bunch of water, anyways," so and then you'll be really hungry after all the water's worn off. But whatever, you know.
0: Yeah. So remind me again, how did you do in the in those Vegas events?
1: So I was seven and two on day one of Vegas, and then I six zero day two to go 13-2 and got ninth on breakers. But I was at table nine and the math I did indicate I would get like 11th, but my breakers jumped a bunch. So I was like 1% off. So if one more match had gone my way, like round 15, I would have been in. But, you know, I, I was expecting a worse outcome than what happened. And, you know, I've gotten lucky a lot of times in my career that doesn't really bother me that things did not break my way that one
0: time. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was for Legacy, right? Yeah, in modern I died
1: playing for day two. So on Sunday, just hung out with friends. You know, it, it's fine.
0: <laughs>
1: really, it doesn't it, it doesn't bother me. I didn't really like the deck I was playing that much. I was playing Grixis Death Shadow, which is like a great deck, but you really need. You, I think I was playing it too aggressively, frankly. But you know, you live, you learn. Things happen.
0: <laughs> I know you really enjoy Legacy, but do you enjoy Modern?
1: Um. At certain points, I have really, really liked the deck I was playing. Uh, then I would enjoy the format more, but I think the problems with Modern mostly come from the fact that it's a very artificially defined format. Basically, what I mean by that is from the very beginning of the existence of the format, there was an enormous ban list. Frankly, a lot of the cards on the ban list should be on the ban list, but I think a bunch of them shouldn't be. So, you know, you, you live, you learn hopefully they'll like start a new format or fix things, you know, who can say?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, as a, as a professional, you have to play in them, right? Or it's, it's part of magic, but
1: exactly. I mean, magic is still a hard enough game that no matter what format you play, as long as you know your deck and enjoy your deck, you'll gain, gain a bunch of percentage points.
0: Right on. So let me think other than, uh, then Vegas. Uh, what else, what other events did you did you hit up? Maybe there's too many for you to recall, but are there any notable ones along the way?
1: I mean, I went to the Pro Tour in Kyoto and that was like a great time. The weird thing about Japan to me was I booked an Airbnb that said it could fit four people. Then me and my friend got there and were like, they were just lying. This is, there's no way that it can fit four people in here. It was like two small beds and like a kitchen.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't understand how four people could stay there. I think they just have a very different definition of how big things have to be. Yeah, yeah. It it, it was, I I mean, obviously, I don't know Japanese. I can't speak a word of it. But I know enough of the characters to know, like, what they're talking about some of the time, you know, because they borrowed, like, most of the written language at some point. And so I can tell what they're talking about, sort of, even though my Chinese is not that good, frankly, I'm going to say. hmm
0: yeah, uh, so it was just the two of you, uh, but you were expecting, like, a, a bigger Airbnb, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I thought for the two of us, it would be, like, twice as big as it was, and it was barely enough space for the two of <laughs> us. It was, I'm glad we didn't try to fit a third person in there, frankly. Yeah. And we went to, like, a meeting room every day that was, like, a 1.5-mile walk. The not, The walk was nice. It was trying to book – a hotel conference room there was not really very practical like they were just really expensive so we like i don't remember how we exactly found this conference room i think mark asked one of his japanese friends to just do research for him and book it for him mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly speaking uh, it, it's not that easy to do it if you don't know japanese i think and like given the japanese culture of they're sort of like very insulated i would say they don't like to interact with foreigners. And even if they don't like you, they'll still be very polite to you. They'll just not tell you the whole whatsoever is going on. That's just my opinion.
0: No, actually, I was just going to say that they're very insular. My wife and I went there in December to Kyoto. And yeah. uh, we did an Airbnb as well. Fortunately, our Airbnb was awesome because the, the host, like she, she was a first-time Airbnb uh, host. And she went totally out of her way to just make everything great. But definitely, we didn't speak any Japanese, so it was a huge barrier. And every time I've been to Japan, which is only a few times, I, I experienced exactly what you're talking about. It's like people are so really polite on the surface. And I, I only say on the surface. Uh, even if they don't understand what you're saying, they'll just kind of like go ahead and nod their head. And I, I, I remember asking someone for directions, and it would just literally take just wasted like 10 minutes of my time because they wouldn't give up but they would still they didn't understand what the heck i was saying but they would just keep trying to to help and it almost Uh became annoying but that's anyway that's that's kind of my my digression (laughs) but but overall kyoto was hopefully hopefully fun for you like oh it's fun
1: i mean i didn't i went like eight and eight in the tournament but the food was great like hanging with my friends is great i honestly my favorite part of going to foreign countries is Seeing what the native food is like, frankly, like going to restaurants that are not catered towards Americans, like trying to go to the like restaurants, the locals go to, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: And just being like, even if I can't speak any Japanese, I'll just like be, can I get that thing? <laughs> I'll just,
0: something get and just like find, yeah. out what,
1: find out what it is, you know, it's okay. And again, I, I know enough of the menu to know if I'm getting fish, you know, meat, yeah. rice or noodles, because all of those characters are exactly the same, you know? Yeah. It's, like I'm not I'm not completely in the dark. I told like I told the people, yeah, if you order this, you can sort of expect seafood or something like that. Yeah, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, it's not the first time you've been to Japan though, right? Like
1: No, Pro Tour Nagoya twenty eleven, I got really sick while I was traveling there, so it was really unpleasant, but that's you know, that's my fault. I was much younger, I was stupider, you know.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> it- <laughs> It sounded like you were pretty. You are pretty content with how you did at the the pro tour, right? I mean, uh, did you guys? What, what, is, am I putting words in your mouth? Or uh, I'm always aiming to do better. I'm not going to be satisfied completely until
1: I've won the event. But that I understand, there's like a lot of hoops to go through, like rungs on the ladder to climb. You know, I'm not really that satisfied with an eight and eight. That's kind of very average, obviously. like 8-8 is the epitome of average, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm I'm aiming higher than that all the time. I would be satisfied with the eleven five finish, frankly, because yeah. that's a finish that gives you 10 pro points and usually caches for like uh, 1,500 or 2,000, depending on where you end up in the tie breaks. Yeah.
0: Do you think that the 8-8, it was just a... Uh... Was it like some kind of variance thing, or did you feel like you 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 didn't prepare enough, or like if you look back on it, like what what were the what were the factors? I guess I think the constructed deck I picked
1: was not great, which is going to cost you a lot of points. And I think my understanding of draft was pretty reasonable, but there's always room to improve as well. Like that you're the, it's always crunch time before a pro tour. You don't you you wish you had like another you know, 10, 15 drafts under your belt, but there's no time, you know?
0: Okay. And how did you guys uh, prepare for it? I mean, you, you guys went as a team, right? So how did you, what was the preparation process like? Just just for someone like me who doesn't, who only hears about this stuff and has never been to a pro tour, like how, did, how does that go usually?
1: So the way I view it, I'm not sure all of my teammates view this the same way. Five-eighths of <laughs> the pro tour is constructed and three-eighths is draft. So you should sort of dedicate that proper ratio amount of time. But on the flip side, they've been releasing the sets on Magic Online early and earlier, so it's easier to find a constructed deck that's somewhat reasonable, even if it's not, like, insanely good. So it's sort of, where can you find edges? It may be easier to find an edge in draft if you do a bunch of drafts and find a strategy that no one's found. Um like, a Pro Tour, Amonkhet, Calcano, and the rest of the MTG Mint guys had a strategy of drafting a really low curve deck and drafting, like, enchantments put on, like, Cartouche of Solidarity, Cartouche of Zeal, you know, whatever. Just try not to play anything that costs four, more than four men and play, like, 15 to 16 lands in their decks. And they, like, crushed the limited portion of that format, like, of that tournament, not even close. And then people started imitating them, so the edge was gone after the Pro Tour, but it existed for the Pro Tour. Mm. So, like, finding finding unexplored things that are good is sort of what you want to do in all of your preparation. That really hasn't happened to us since Pro Tour Oath of the Gatewatch, where we basically did invent the blue-red Eldrazi deck that crushed the event. Um, I mean, it's 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 really hard to break... Break formats because they've been pushing the set out earlier, which means all of the hive mind is playing standard on Magic Online, and you know decks churn through so quickly. And you might play against someone who has a great idea, and you see their idea in the game, and then you just copy it and reverse engineer it. So like that's how things get leaked too. So our in general, our preparation is once the spoiler comes out, we'll just brew up a bunch of new decks. You know, try them for a bit. And usually there's a Star City Games open like a week or two after, and we can look at the results from that and see if our deck has been discovered or any of our decks have been discovered or where the metagame is going towards. Because if if, if we've brewed up decks that are bad against where that metagame is going towards, you might as well just not even sweep that deck up because it's more likely those decks will show up at the Pro Tour as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like such an art. Like, how do you... How do you know when to nip ideas in the bud versus how to push things more and explore, like versus picking a deck that's just conventionally like a tier one, you know? I'm just wondering, is there a process or structure or framework around that?
1: So that is a very good question. And
0: I don't believe any
1: professional team has really solved that question, like fully, frankly. Because the amount of work you have to do to prove that a deck is completely bad, it it takes so much work. Usually, people just make a judgment call at some point. Like they'll set us a, a time limit to work on a deck, and if you don't have good enough results by that point, you should quit it and look at look at something else. For this pro tour, for for the the one the last pro tour, there were six weeks in between the release and the pro tour. Yeah, which actually meant you didn't have to like. Focus on Constructed until way later in the process if you wanted to. Right. There were a bunch of U.S. Nationals beforehand. There was the, the Players' Champions Worlds beforehand. There was just so much data, and you could tell if your brew was going to beat those well-known good decks already. Yeah. And I'm not going to lie, most of the decks I don't think actually beat the well-known good deck. Like, in fact, I played the well-known good deck in Nationals and at the Pro Tour, just because I thought it was just so much better than everything mm-hmm. else.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's almost like not worth kind of uh, trying to break something because you have six weeks, you can wait for the data to come in, right? You can, And then you can just pit your, your bruise against that to see if you can, yeah, if you can beat
1: the exactly. best. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's how Pascal decided to play White Gift at the last pro tour and he got second. It, like, it worked out for him. He also said to the rest of our team, if you haven't put in enough reps – with this deck two weeks before, you should not play it. It's just too difficult. You're not going to know what to do.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, you should just stick to red or Teamer.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, just by hearing you talk about it, it almost, make, also, almost makes me think about like things outside of Magic, where I almost wish that if you were a pro player, uh if I were in your shoes, like if there's a way to like outsource like brewing and street and decks to like other people so that they can or put it into a machine or computer, <laughs> let it crunch and then come right. back to you and say, "This worked or this doesn't work like I feel like there's this kind of automated or outsourced sphere of magic that could potentially exist. Maybe I'm crazy by just just thinking about that as you're talking about it
1: I mean that would be useful if you knew you could trust the results from the machine right you You can't necessarily trust the result. Currently, in my opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, uh I know that your your kind of your your magic calendar is different from the uh the 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 physical world calendar or the lunar calendar or whatever. But right. W- right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, okay, now that we're talking about August being the beginning of the magic year. What types of goals do you have for yourself at this at, at the beginning here? It's only three months in, but uh, I'm just wondering, like, what 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 are the goals that actually? Sorry, let me let me backtrack. the The previous year, I guess, leading up to July of this year, um, what types of magic goals did you have if you go back like a year ago? And did you can you just recap them for me and maybe and maybe describe how you you met or didn't meet those types of goals?
1: So. I would say at the beginning of last Magic Year, when I was still... I was gold-locked for that entire year. My goal was at least to reach gold again, do better in the Pro Tours, and improve at Booster Draft, frankly, because I think that's one of my weaker points. I can... I know how to practice constructed and how to pick a deck, frankly. Um... But the the other things like just playing better at the pro- professional level, knowing how to get edges at the professional level and booster drafting at the professional level are very difficult things that require a lot of fine tuning. Like and I, I'm still working on those things
0: as well. I'd like to get into that a little bit because you had just talked about the importance of edges and developing that uh, preparation for Pro Tour. You you just mentioned playing better. Uh, how does one play better, or maybe put it another way how How do you identify like maybe the holes in your game or the gaps related to playing better at a at the top level?
1: So I think at the top level, it's not enough to not make mistakes. It requires more than that to really succeed. I've noticed that in the last you know two or three years playing on the PT that. The really great players know how to drive the narrative into thinking their to making their opponent think the game is some about something that it really isn't. And figuring out how to drive that narrative is not an easy skill or task. Only the truly elite have that skill, in my opinion.
0: So that means your your the ability to p- let the opponent think that they're in a different role, like. I'm trying to understand what you mean by that. Maybe if you can be more specific with examples, that would be helpful. It's, it's related
1: to the idea of bluffing, but also knowing that your opponent is good enough to pick up on the signals that you're sending out. If your opponent's not good enough, then you might as well just throw all of this out the window because they're not going to notice like the signals of making yeah. You can't an bluff
0: a bad player, right? In poker, so.
1: right? It. it it's related to that idea, but it's even a little bit deeper than that. Like, you also have to understand what they're thinking and how to manipulate what they're thinking by doing things that may not make sense if they could actually see your hand, if that makes any sense.
0: So does that mean playing unconventionally to make them wonder, like, hey, what's Jarvis actually up to? Or I'm still trying to figure out how that works.
1: Yeah, so... A lot of the times, like, you're basically not allowed to make an attack that leaves you dead on board unless you've convinced your opponent that you have something to make this attack lethal the other direction, essentially. And then they'll be, like, they'll make a block that they may not want to make, but you actually want them to trade off their guys for your guys so you won't be dead on the next turn, essentially. that That's, like, a very simple example. It's a very complicated concept, and I'm not sure that it's really that easy to teach. Like, I'm still learning how to do it, frankly, and I think everyone is still trying to learn how to do it.
0: Yeah. I mean, for a casual player like myself, I often hear about these types of things when I'm reading about coverage or when I read some of PV's articles, because he's always talking about things like the game within the game and the mental aspect, so.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but how do you get better at that? Because I would imagine that you can't get better at that just playing, just grinding on Magic Online, right? Just by like playing against players who are quite frankly average uh, in the aggregate. So how do you how do you improve on that?
1: So I think one of the better ways to do it is to watch all of the coverage matches of the really great players and ask yourself, why are they doing things that may not look like they make sense on the surface, but try to understand how their actions fit into the narrative of the game, essentially.
0: Mm. And do you also find that, that's a really good one? Uh, I, I think a lot a lot of uh, casual players maybe don't do that enough. They just stick to to grinding or playing with their friends, um, right? But I'm also wondering how you came to that realization. Was it like because you felt like someone pulled that on you? Or did you feel like by talking to fellow players, that's that's what they identified as a as a whole?
1: I think it's a combination of the two, but more so just talking to the people who are really, truly great. Um, it, it's not like Finkel or Apollo are not luckier than you are. There's no way they can be. They just know how to drive the game to where they want it to be, and sometimes I think casual players sort of like assess as mysticism or luckiness to those two players they that they don't actually have they're just they're humans like you are, they can't like manipulate everything to work out in their feet magically they're just really good at knowing how to push the game towards where they want it to be
0: Hmm. is that push like some kind of thing where like it's almost like a force of will like if they're pushing like is it like a marsh is it like sparring where you if you're good enough you know to see what they're doing and kind of push back or and if or if you don't know at all you're just going to get totally destroyed like i'm i'm still trying to understand like what what that means and like if i'm playing against owen turnwald i'll get destroyed um is, is it because i don't see all the things that he's doing or if, if i don't see what he's doing at all do i actually have a better chance uh, i don't know i
1: think you might have a slightly better chance but owen will often know what level you are on and if he knows you're just someone that is not going to read the signals of things he's doing he's just going to play his best technical game and just try to beat you that way frankly
0: okay Because I would imagine that you're probably a really strong technical player. You're probably better than I don't know. You're probably better than 95 percent of like all magic players. But what you're saying is interesting because it's really like to get to the next next level of where you need to be, you have to do that now. Right. It's not just enough to play well and not make mistakes. That's what you're saying. Right. So how how are you going to like is it just getting more reps at the Pro Tour level? I guess just watching more videos or like. Uh, because I feel like deliberate practice is something that you really uh, taught me when we last talked. Like You don't spend like, the most hours of any Magic player playing the game. Like So you're thinking about the game. So how do you put that into practice for the, for the coming year to get better in, in this respect?
1: I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out, frankly. Uh, once I figure it out, I'll probably let you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you should keep it a secret, though, right? Don't let anybody know that edge.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll keep it a secret for a while, and if it works, then I'll let people know.
0: Then you'll write a best-selling book and sell it for nine ninety-nine dollars and, and get rich. <laughs> okay. That would be fantastic. Yeah. So what about the other thing you said, which is uh, getting better at booster drafting or limited? Uh, what kinds of steps do you think you'll take to improve in that?
1: I think the biggest step I need to take is to actually just do more of it. I used... Back when I was in graduate school, I actually think I drafted way more than I played Constructed. So I used to be opposite in skill sets. Um, it's just nowadays, you there's a much higher payoff for being good at Constructed as opposed to Booster Draft. But like I was saying, I think Booster Draft is one of the more underexplored areas at the Pro Tour. So it might be better to get an edge that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, it, is it is it just a matter of putting in more reps for you, or do you have to approach it differently as well?
1: It, it's a matter of putting in reps and trying to come up with theories of how to exploit the draft game. Like, if a strategy is underrepresented, that might be really good. You have to you have to make sure that that theory is actually correct. Okay.
0: And the last time we talked, we you know we had talked a little bit about mentors and people that can help you because you're part of a team. uh, How do you get people on your team or your friends or partners to do you, do you, do you seek them out for advice on how to like, how to get better in certain areas like drafting?
1: Or I'll just have them like watch the draft I'm doing, you know, online, like Skype is great for that, you know, and sometimes I'll watch their drafts and see how their approaches differ. And if someone is winning a lot, you might want to look at their approach and see how it differs from everyone else's,
0: you know, got it.
1: It's a combination of all of those things, I think. And that's, that's the value of a team.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, so I guess in summary, your goal really this year is to get better at, uh, those couple of areas that you said and also to get back to being golden. And, and is that, is that fair to say?
1: Yes, that, that is fair to say. I like even currently right now for, the 2017 and the 2018 uh, year, I'm not qualified for all, all four pro tours. I was qualified for Pro Tour One off of Las Vegas. I'm qualified for Pro Tour Two off of Silver. Currently,
0: got it. I, I mean, I, we can we can cut this part out of the interview if if, if you want. But I'm just wondering how you like. How did it make you feel going from from gold to silver? Like, did you feel like it was variance or did you feel like it was something that you were actually conscientiously doing or not doing that that led to that? Um, I know magic is very, variance based, but I, I'm wondering how you handle that, like uh, on a mental, uh, mentally and also emotionally.
1: Honestly, it really didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. I didn't think I was playing like significantly worse, maybe a little bit worse. But there, like you said, there's a lot of variance. I think the year before I was extremely fortunate in a lot of areas, and you know this year I wasn't as fortunate, and maybe I played a little bit worse. But I can sort of work better for next year and hope to improve. Like I, I prefer to think positively instead of negatively, you know.
0: Yeah, that's 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 always the right mindset. Uh, and even the last time we talked, sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I I read I read the interview transcripts of the last time we talked, so I tried to like draw a little bit from that. Uh, I remember asking you about about you know the upcoming year, which has already happened, and and you said that you know it uh, you'll take it well, right? Like, and it seems like you have. So it's for you, it's just about like what can I do next and how can I do better going forward, right? I really really right. admire that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's talk about teams for a while. So. Uh, since a lot has changed there too. Uh, you're now part of uh, what's called Mastrop East, right? Right. So tell me a little bit about how you got into that team and uh, and uh, who you're teamed up with for most of the most of your uh, most of the pro season.
1: So Mastrop East is one of the six man team series squads. It is me, Ari Lax, Mark Jacobson, uh, Tommy Ashton. Timothy Wu, and Scott Lipp. Um, most of these people do live on the East Coast, which is why it's called East. But the origins of the entire naming convention was during Pro Tour Oath, we were called East-West Bowl. And I don't know if you know the origins of that name, do you?
0: Yeah, the Key, peel, key and Peele yes, right? Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alex Matloton loves that skit. He <laughs> he played it so many times during that Pro Tour testing. That's why that's why we were East West Bowl to be in with. And then the year after that we were MassDrop Drop East, MassDrop West, and Moxbox Bowl. So we retained the East West and Bowl okay. in the last 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 character name. Sadly there's no more Moxbox Bowl, but we still are part of MassDrop East and West. They're sponsoring two teams. They pay us a certain amount, you know, every once in a while.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, so these guys that are on your team, you guys have been working together for a while, even before it was called mastrop did I Did I get that right? Yeah, I, I've known Tom,
1: Tommy Ashton, Tim Wu, and uh, I've known them for a long time because they're from like Maryland slash DC for quite a while. And I've known Ari for like years as well. Mark and Scott Whip I haven't known as long, but they're great guys too. So you know, the chemistry's there. Everyone's happy, and we work with the West guys as well. So you know, it's it, it's it's
0: been good. So the West guys are literally located on the West Coast. Most of them. <laughs> okay. Some of them live in Canada, honestly. So I. Okay. So Master of North or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Uh, on West is Sean McCorn. He used to be a lone wolf, but we uh, picked him up for this year. Yeah. Sean McCorn, Pascal, Maynard, uh, John Stern. Uh, I might have to go look up the other names. It's Eric. Okay. <laughs> and there's there's two other guys. I. I'm sorry. I know. No, as long as you
0: didn't mess up the names of your own team, I was, I was just thinking, man, I wonder if Jarvis is not going to remember the members on his own team. That would be really funny. And we should we should make that into a 30 second video and put it on YouTube or something. But this is this is good. This is good. Um. But how I mean, what? What? I, I don't know these guys nearly as well as you do. Like, what do they bring to to making you better as a player?
1: I mean, everyone has different skills. Some people like to brew the new decks, like you mentioned before. Some people just like to tune the exi- existing decks to like almost perfection. You know, the best version of the best deck. You know, get get it there and play it against everyone as the enemy and see if the other decks can survive. You know, th- those are both very valuable skills, but they're completely different skill sets. You know, it's not easy to be able to do both by yourself.
0: What do you see as your role in the team? Like are you the the resident, uh mastermind mathematician or like what <laughs> what's your uh, what's your what's your expertise? I,
1: I wouldn't say that. I generally am very pro playing the best known deck and trying to get it to where it's really good versus everything and just focusing on that. Sometimes that gets me in trouble when other people have found it like it's now no longer the best deck by the Pro Tour, and I still play the deck. That is somewhat of a flaw of mine. But during testing, I'm I'm re- pretty reliable to get you know the teamer deck to where it needs to be for the Pro Tour. Okay,
0: so you're gonna like optimize the best so that you're like the spikiest of the spikes. If you could if <laughs> yeah. you could actually describe people on the team as all being spikes, you might be the spikiest of them all. <laughs> I think so. Okay, very cool. Uh, so are there any interesting stories or experiences that you can share about like anything you've had with your team, like just, I don't know, just randomly bad restaurants you've been to or, or <laughs> interesting stories along the way, or like weird stuff happening in Japan, just, it's just anything.
1: Um, I'm trying to remember, uh, I wish I had a story on like on deck for that, but you know. I think the the joke in the house is that I fall asleep during the limited meetings. Like, people just take pictures of me falling asleep. Or <laughs> <laughs> falling asleep. It, the first night when we were at Pro Tour Madrid, like, a few years ago, we went to a restaurant, and I just fell asleep before the food came. And someone took a picture through a wine glass of me falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of funny, like, ongoing, like, sh- common thread that I just will fall asleep, like if I'm tired, you know, even if something, (laughs) something's going on, you know?
0: Yeah. I feel (laughs) like we share a bond now because I get that a lot too. I fall asleep all the time. Like I fall asleep watching a movie. I fall asleep while I'm at the restaurant and my coworkers would actually take photos of me and and tag me on Facebook. It's really, (laughs) it's really bad. I hope they haven't done that to you, but.
1: I mean, sometimes they do whatever, you know, you have to take in a stride.
0: <laughs> and I fall asleep in the worst way. Like my mouth is open. There's like some drool coming <laughs> off the side of my face. It's really like if you fall asleep and you can do it like in an elegant fashion, I think it's fine. You're probably a, you're probably more graceful than I am. So.
1: <laughs> uh, sometimes.
0: <laughs> Yeah, uh but I mean did you guys have any um particularly like did you have any particularly proud moments like that you guys had achieved together as a team, like in terms of a finish or um uh, putting a deck together for the team? I mean, I think we got very lucky. The first Pro Tour
1: that East West Bowl existed, that blue red Eldrazi deck was truly great. And it put um Two of our teammates playing that deck in the top eight, and one of our teammates playing Affinity in to that top eight. Honestly, I think we started high and sort of dropped off since then, and it's been really hard to get back to that high point. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you recapture that magic, right? That or the spark. I mean, honestly, yeah. I
1: think it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time, being an underdog team, everyone just knowing their deck because it was a modern Pro torn very well. And a lot of people just hadn't seen a deck like that, you know. Yeah, a combination of all of those factors.
0: But but I'm really wondering here, like, um, just just real talk. I mean, if you look at Peach Garden Oath or some of these like amazing teams, like they always seem to be doing quite well or have somebody um, at the top there uh, in the top eight or something at a Pro Tour. So what what makes them great? Like, if you could look at that that team, like what how do they do they always find the edge? Are they just better than everybody at like the way they play like you said or is it are they just like masters at both limited and constructed? Like how does that work?
1: I think they are in the top like point oh 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 one percent of play skill in the tournament and I think they're very good at booster draft normally. Booster draft is more of an art and less of a science whereas constructed is more of a science and less of an art. That's my opinion.
0: I see, I see. Okay. Um, and looking back on the past couple of months, uh, <coughs> well, you had mentioned like maybe focusing more on on booster draft, but do you also see any uh, any other types of things in your game that you feel like you have to you have to improve on, and uh, you know, other than the kind of the I don't know what to call it, like the bluffing element or the booster draft element. Are there other things that you, you feel like you have to work on to get to to gold? Or or is it just, just being Jarvis U is, is enough?
1: I think I might need to improve at the Pro Tour level, being willing to take a risk and not playing the optimized version of what I perceive to be the best deck. Because that is also the deck that most of the other people in the Pro Tour have played the most against. So they're not going to go in being completely dead to that deck unless if they're just wrong. But that's just like something you can't really gamble on, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you a non sequitur? Were, were you a Cobblade player back in the day? Or did you try to play a deck that oh, that yeah. beat Cobblade? Funny
1: story is at the Pro Tour where Cobblade came out, I knew about it and I didn't play it. That was the- <laughs> I since then that's why it became the oh, guys that's why okay, of
0: okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
1: but Bobweed wasn't known that well before the pro tour frankly um it's just some of the channel fireball guys talked too much and it sort of leaked out a little bit but if they hadn't talked it would have just been completely unknown only the Japanese figured it out as well but they had a very different version. Mm-hmm.
0: I just use that as an example because it's so hard right how do you know like when to not just play the best deck i mean you like if you're playing a rogue or another deck like how do you how do you like it's not it's not scientific right how do you how do you know when to go for that versus the tuning the best deck i how how do you do it like how do you assess it
1: i think part of it is to see if your deck is inherently strong a lot of those decks that prey upon the best deck are not inherently strong decks. They're decks that sort of exploit a hole in the best deck, if that makes sense. um, Like, the Cowboy deck sort of was built to exploit the best deck in the format that was known, which was the Valkit Ramp deck. But it just turned out to be just a completely busted deck completely.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um... And also looking back, what were the toughest moments for you as a Magic player? Were there like particular rounds or plays or tournaments where it was really, really challenging for you for whatever reason, either emotionally or in the moment?
1: So it's interesting when you ask that. I don't think, most of the time, I don't feel a lot of stress when I'm playing a match. I'm just looking to see where the game is going, what story is being told during the match. The whole idea that a match is a narrative, you know, I don't really, like, get stressed out in high-pressure matches like other people do. I think that's one of my strengths, you know. If I'm playing for, like, top eight of a GP or whatever, it's not really going to affect me. I I think I'm going to do what I think is right Mm -hmm. and to hell with everyone else. I don't care if they think I'm wrong because I'm playing the game. They aren't. They can judge me later, you know. I'm just going to do my thing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So you're like a a magic stoic, right? So you've you put in the, yeah. the preparation, the work, the deck. So once you're there and you've been there so many times, it doesn't matter. Like you'll just you just do what you need to do, right? And just to right. everything out.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my question was a, was a feeble attempt to constr- to create a narrative around like, you know, <laughs> like you have these like magic retrospective videos where they talk about their Hall of Fame career and it's like, that was my shiny moment or that was like my darkest moment. But sometimes it's not always like that, right? So, right. Okay, uh, let's talk about streaming. So you have uh, a dedicated stream, which appears to be like firing pretty regularly, like a weekly or very regular basis. Uh, uh, you're doing that on twitch like what motivated you to start streaming more um
1: so first off I just wanted to get my name out there that frankly it's just building a brand is really hard and magic there are a bunch of ways you can do it writing for a big website is the most common way to do it but sometimes the websites are full of writers already you know it so the next best way to get your name out there is to start a Twitch stream. And especially if you're already known for playing a deck, you know, in Legacy or whatever, it's easier to start that stream, I think. And that's why I started streaming. Um, I will play almost any format, frankly, on stream. I don't care. Like, Modern, Standard, Limited, Legacy, Vintage, you know. Bring all of them on. Magic is magic. It's great.
0: (laughs) yeah yeah so i mean it's good to get get a little bit more visibility out there uh in the stream like do you uh what kinds of things are you doing because i i feel like when i watch a stream like it's not just the magic play but it's like the the personality of the person or their interactions with the the chat so um how do you do you do you find yourself still being the person you are or are you a little bit different online or on the stream
1: I think I'm more open about who I am on the stream as opposed to like a real life match of magic because I don't the person I'm playing is not sitting across from me if that makes sense, so it's easier for me to be open or honest on the stream and frankly, I do play a little bit worse while streaming because I want to interact with the people in my chat I want to talk to them I want to see what they're asking or answer their questions and see what lines of play they're thinking of. That will lead to more losses, but I don't care as much. Like, I just want to provide the experience for everyone who's there.
0: Yeah. I ask that because uh, people often say, people who have been streaming for a while, that streaming also helps them improve their game when they have to explain why they're doing certain things uh, as right. opposed to being more intuitive uh, in your head. Um, has it helped you at all in terms of uh improving your magic play or is it is it more just about the, the, the social or the community aspect of it?
1: I think it's interesting to see how other people perceive the game so it's helpful in that regard. I think if you're talking from a pure technical standpoint, it's not great for that because you will make mistakes that you normally don't make because you're talking to a chat, you're paying attention more to the chat than Maybe you should pay more, a little bit more attention to the game itself. But you're trying to interact with the chat, see what they're thinking. You know, try to do things that will entertain them or make them happy. You know, sometimes I'll do something that is sort of baffling just to see what will happen. You know.
0: Yeah, for sure. See how they react. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, what what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned from streaming uh, magic?
1: That. It's really hard to stream magic. That's, so when other streamers make mistakes, I don't jump on their case anymore. I used <laughs> to. But now I understand that there's more to it than just like not making mistakes. Um, and also, magic is a really hard game. Even if you are playing by yourself in a room, those are the major lessons I've, I've learned from streaming magic, frankly.
0: So, are you going to do you see yourself doing that for the foreseeable future, uh, just streaming and on a regular basis? Yeah, until
1: like I get too busy with other things, you know, I, I can still spare like one or two nights a week to do it, and I'm going to keep doing it until A, I don't, I no longer enjoy it, or B, you know, I just don't have time.
0: Mm hmm. Uh, and are there any um, other streamers who are, have been influences on you, like Gristlepuff or a- any of these randoms out there? Like, <laughs> I mean, I
1: honestly, I wish Bob streamed more. And I also wish that Bob had like an actual stream layout. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Bob. I think he plays Magic. He plays Legacy Magic very well. Um, honestly... You know, if Bob wanted to qualify for this legacy, legacy poetry, he probably could. But he has to put the work in. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no no ways around that.
0: Yeah. Well, he seems to be doing pretty well. I mean, with at least with legacy yeah. events. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, anybody else, like, in terms of, like, just influences on you in terms of stream work? Because what I find, like, when oh. I started podcasting is that after I do... After I started doing it myself, I realized, oh, shit, this is actually really hard. And then you start to actually see yeah. what pe- other people do it, what they're doing. Has right. that ever happened to you at all? Or
1: Oh, yeah. I like um, DZYL. His real name is Jan Dervet. He won a Legacy MCS to qualify for one Pro Tour. I think he qualified for another Pro Tour, you know, somehow. I don't, I don't remember how. But his favorite format is Cube Draft. Mm-hmm. And he really just goes off the deep end every time he cubes. It's, it's just great to watch. And he explains what he's thinking. And he's also a, like a data scientist. So you know, all of the boxes are checked for me there.
0: Right, right. Uh, speaking of what you said about Bob, uh, this is a question that, because I'm, I'm such a legacy-centric person, I, I want to ask you. Uh, obviously, you're, you've been a very uh, strong player within the legacy format. Uh, <coughs> Do you have any advice you want to give to aspiring legacy players who want to try and qualify for the the announced legacy pro tour because it seems like a lot of people are coming out of the woodwork and they really want to they really want to do this but then people are also kind of uh people who play legacy typically aren't as good as magic as people who play all the formats and they also have maybe full time jobs that have less time so is there any advice you would give to those kind of uh aspiring legacy? players who want to who try and do that, try to do legacy PT?
1: That's a great question. The most likely way you will qualify for that pro tour, that team pro tour, is the RPTQ system. You can have one of your friends take you who won a PPTQ, and three of you will play standard unified constructed at that RPTQ, which is a very specific format. So my advice to them is they actually need to play a different format, learn that format, show the same level of dedication. You know, even if you can't play every night, just read. You know, look at all of the decks, know what they do, know what they're capable of. By the time the RPTQ runs around, go go with your friends and just play the best you can at that RPTQ. You know, that is the most likely way for them to qualify. The other way that they can qualify is to obviously, you know, do well at a Legacy Grand Prix during that time period, you know, go 13-2 or better. Um, that's still difficult, obviously, but th- those are the two most likely routes to qualify for, for that tour, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's great. And you're good at legacy, you're good at standards, so have you thought about maybe doing, a, starting a consulting service to get people who, <laughs> who have exactly that need, like, let Jarvis <laughs> teach you like, how, to, how to qualify for the legacy PT like, and coach you over <laughs> Skype, you know? You should, you should think about that.
1: Uh, I'll think about it, but my my uh, nights are so full as it is, I've thought about it, and I'm just like, I don't have enough time for this, frankly.
0: <laughs> There's lots of guys that I talk to or know that, that have said that to me, and then and then a month later, they've started a consulting service. So, you know, like, then they offer, like, one-on-one coaching, and I don't know, maybe right. they need the money or whatever, but or they <laughs> – <but, laughs> Okay, okay. Um, and this one is more of a legacy specific question. So if people are just wanting to get, maybe not even legacy PT, but if they want to just get better at legacy, but they don't have a ton of free time, what can they do to get to get better? Like, do they just play a lot of magic online? Do they read a lot? Like, what would you recommend uh, for those types of players?
1: For those types of players, if they're a working professional, and like, obviously, the context of the question sort of matters. If these people have played a lot of magic in their life already, then they're able to look at Legacy, I think, and look at all the decks and pick a deck that appeals to them and just practice that deck for a little bit, see if they win a little bit or not. If they don't, well, maybe they should look for a different deck, try that one as well. But they can just do it like once a week, you know, like spend three hours once a week repeatedly and hope to accumulate knowledge that way
0: okay yeah that's that's great and uh this other one came from a a friend of mine so uh we all know that you have a mathematics background um what are the pros and cons of being a statistical person he actually wrote statistical person when it comes to playing the game like does that does that impact you when you're trying to play live versus online and things like that? I'm just thinking about like, maybe there's an analogy to poker here where playing online, you can't read people, but you can actually think about percentages and, and outs and draws, whereas live, maybe there's a little bit more going on in addition to that. I'm just wondering, or he's just wondering, based on uh, being very strong in statistics and math, does that ever does that help you or in, in some way when you're playing the game?
1: That's a great question. Uh, the difference between real life and online play for me especially is body language for my opponent. There are a lot of times where your opponent will just like have like really negative like body language, like they're, they're completely defeated. So, you know, they don't have anything good
0: mm-hmm.
1: online. Mm-hmm. it That just doesn't exist obviously because they're like behind a keyboard or whatever. So in real life, I will adjust my, you know, assigning of percentages to them having card differently based on their body language.
0: Hmm. So <coughs> like is that a, is that also a hole in many people's games live? Is that they just can't hide anything? Like
1: Yeah, they should they should just be still the entire time, frankly. That's how Owen operates, that's how most of the really you know, top level names operate.
0: Hmm. Okay. So, so an example of that is like if they're looking really defeated or something, then you just don't give them the, you just don't give them the benefit of the doubt on like what they have unless they're top decking or something like that. Right. Right. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what about just like being? Uh, okay, so I guess that's that's live versus versus Magic Online. Uh, does that does that mean that so? I guess what I, can, what I can take from that is that to be a, a good Magic Online player, you have to be very good at like, the fundamentals or technical play, as opposed to being live where maybe you can get by with other things.
1: Exactly. Mm. That's a good way of putting it. Okay.
0: Thanks for listening. You've reached the end of part one of my conversation with Jarvis Yu. Please listen to the next episode for the ins and outs of the Legacy Lands deck. See you there.